Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I'm very excited to bring back Hasu. We spoke to Hasu back in the fall about treasury management, which I think received a lot of great feedback. And along with his the piece that he wrote on treasuries, I think a lot of teams and, and people have, have referenced it. And, and it's really influenced a lot of thinking about how people like think about their protocol treasuries, how they deploy it, how they diversify it. And we've definitely just seen it have a have a large impact across the industry. And treasuries are something that's especially relevant now, given what's happened in the last few weeks. Today's topic, though, will be a little different. We're going to be talking a little more broadly about DAO governance as a whole across a variety of different protocols and across a variety of, of DAOs. Hasu is an active participant in a lot of different governance systems. He's developed his own opinions about what's working and what's not. And Larry and I have, have always enjoyed chatting with him and brainstorming with him and sometimes complaining with him about what is working and what is not working in crypto governance. I think Recently, a lot of the sentiment has been DAO governance is not working so well. There's obvious things that, that can be improved. So, and Hasu, again, has, has talked about some of this on publicly already, but we really wanted to bring him on just to really have a, have a broad ranging discussion about these things and, and really think from first principles in terms of how these protocols should be built, how they should be governed, both from an on-chain and off-chain perspective. So... Yeah, I think today we'll talk about a, a few different topics, but really just meant to to rethink DAO governance from first principles and and sort of navigate through the idea maze. So, Hasu, welcome and and thanks for coming on. Yo, Derek, thanks for the introduction and hi to you as well, Larry. Glad to be back. Yeah, it's it's been funny, right? The last episode we did on, on treasury management, and and now it seems we're in a full blown bear market. And yeah, it seems like it didn't take long for a lot of the thesis we put in in that article in that podcast to you know be completely validated it's not a surprise to me it just didn't expect it to happen so soon yeah and I, it's also funny that ironic in a sense that i'm here to talk about you know dao governance because i've been i would say a huge skeptic of daos in general and you know dao governance for years i am now involved with some of them but it has only affirmed many of the beliefs that I was already holding. To set the stage, could you talk a little bit about your participation in governance and, and your history and, and just like what protocols you're active in and and why you selected those protocols in the first place? Yeah, sure. So I joined crypto in 2018 and I basically focused only on Bitcoin for the first two years until sometime in like late 2019, early 2020, when I became interested in Ethereum. And I would say I started participating in governance pretty quickly just because like when I'm part of a community, part of a system, I'm using it, I'm analyzing it, thinking what is its purpose in the world? You know, what does it want to do? Then I just start to, I'm like the, the analyzer slash like the optimizer meme where I have to think about how to do it better and like how could it go wrong? especially the latter, right? I became very interested in Bitcoin security model. I started putting out a lot of 
research on that. Yeah, and, and that was basically my contribution to Bitcoin governance. I, I commented on like various aspects of the protocol and how I think it, it has to evolve in the future, just trying to get my ideas out. And I realized like pretty quickly that it's not really hitting on very fertile ground, if that makes sense. So I thought my, my and I still think like the analyses that I put out are like straightforwardly correct and are going to matter someday. But there's like not much interest in thinking about many of them today. I mean, mainly sort of the declining block subsidy, I think, is is a ticking time bomb in Bitcoin that has to be addressed at some point by the community and by the developers. And I'm like very sure that it will be. But right now, the Overton window is still too close, too closed, basically. So it'll take more evidence that the current system is, is not sustainable for sort of these proposals. And this analysis even to become more mainstream. I mean, it is an extension of your work with Bitcoin and Ethereum in terms of just being actively contributing to the roadmaps of these projects from an economic and security standpoint. Like, I think you're in the last year and a half, you've become active in a lot of these DeFi protocols. And yeah, it's really, really no different. But yeah, it seems like a long time ago. And when you worked on Bitcoin and Ethereum core roadmaps, but yeah, it's a natural, natural extension. On that point where we're still talking about it, so you mentioned like the Overton window of Bitcoin community and the Ethereum community, like what's your kind of intuitive sense for the Overton window? Like when you go to a community and then there's like this, like social pressure not to talk about topics, do you view that as a bad thing or is that like a good thing because people just, you know, they become more tribal and they don't talk about the issues and they sort of just forget that they even exist. And, you know, with a lot of things, you can just forget about them for years and years and years and they never really rear their ugly head. Just curious to get your intuitive take on that. I don't know. I'm leaning towards that it's a bad thing when certain topics are sort of off limits, especially if they are related to, you know, how things can go wrong. I think that's usually how like a community deludes themselves into thinking a system is sound when it really isn't and and sort of fails to take the necessary steps in order to mitigate the problem and you know explore the solutions and then either you don't react in time or you have to react in a very rushed way where sort of you you make a decision but you could have made a, a much better decision if you just spend like a few more years thinking about it and so yeah to me that's definitely more you know nowadays a telltale sign of yeah, a community that's that has certain like problems and you know does not think in a sustainable way. And just to continue on the earlier question, which protocols would you say you're you've experienced DAO governance through in the in the last year or two? Yeah, so after Bitcoin, I started becoming interested in Ethereum. So it was like not like going from Bitcoin to Ethereum. I just became after convincing myself that Bitcoin is sound. It's like Oh, like the concept of like a, a blockchain and like a cryptocurrency is, is sound and it, it does have these problems that we talked about but the overall I, idea is like i understand why you know this works the way that it does and and then i i sort of moved on and went to ethereum and okay so what if you put what if you add like a virtual machine to this right and then it took me like a while to to sort of convince myself that this too is, you know, a good idea and has, it, ha it does have disadvantages, but it also unlocks like a huge area of, 
of innovation and you know amazing things that you can build on top of and really turns turns it from like a database into a platform and then from there i needed to make these steps to become then in, from there interested in like defi protocols and so on because i think it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to get excited about defi projects and you know start investing in those etc when you know it later it turns out they're built on layer of sand so i think you first need confidence that the underlying technology is even sound and is like in a secular growth trend that like ethereum itself is going to be used by more and more people and it does have these amazing properties that then unlock great things that you can do with them like non-custodial fully immutable applications where that can play a lot of the roles that are currently played by centralized financial intermediaries in traditional finance and the, the fact that you can build this on ethereum started making me you know a lot more bullish on it compared to to bitcoin right i i realized that you know most bitcoin is held on exchanges and if you ever want to like we know that people are not going to be content just holding the thing like <laughs> they want to do something with it like they want to collateralize it mainly you know they want to borrow it they want to they want to lend it they want to trade it and if this cannot be done in a, in a decentralized way then it's very likely that like the whole system is going to be sort of going to collapse back into what we already the system that we already know so i thought it was like a much better vision and ultimately sort of more i mean one that's sort of more likely to change the world in in a sustainable way to also be able to build a the financial and the whole decentralized financial system on top of it. So from there, I became interested in Ethereum and I did participate actually in Ethereum governance, probably even to a much greater degree. I was like quite involved with EIP 1559. I would say we were some of the first, George, Joss and I, and who's now the CTO of Paradigm. That was before he joined Paradigm. We became quite interested. Like we were very interested in, in sort of any kind of block space market designs. We had done work on Bitcoin before. And then we started doing work on on this proposal as, as one of the first, and we were we became sort of very early advocates and started joining all of the you know developer calls and and sort of saw this whole proposal through from like the ideation stage all the way to activation. And it, it was to date, I would say, it was the, the most controversial proposal that ever made it into Ethereum itself. So I would say we got a pretty good view into sort of what it takes to to get a, a change in like a major blockchain actually implemented? My sense is most, if you, if you ask an average ETH token holder, what does Ethereum governance look like? They would look at you like you're just absolutely crazy, right? Or a lot of them would just say, I don't know. Can you walk us through like what it means to govern Ethereum? Like what the process is, where people hang out to actually have these discussions? Because I think a lot of people are actually not very clear about it. I would say, and I think we're going to get to this, but the governance of these layer one blockchains is very much unformalized. And that is in many ways that is by design, but it does carry, it does carry the risk that sort of you get these invisible power structures and that, I mean, in Bitcoin, for example, this was just blatantly obvious that, I mean, the community loves to pretend that nobody has any power in Bitcoin or, or that the power is like completely evenly distributed. And it's like this, this sort of the swarm <laughs> in a sense. But I mean, in any kind of human society, 
basically you will have people who, who wield more power than others and and sort of concentrate this this power within themselves and others look to them for you know advice and, and guidance and, and sort of defer their decisions to them and they some become leaders and others become their followers and that's a good thing right because we later see like what happens if, if that's not the case and that scenario is even worse but it definitely can be a problem if you have these sort of invisible power structures that are not formalized and not admitted. And then for someone to come in, it's very hard for them to participate in governance and get their ideas through uh, without sort of, it's harder to learn the rules of the game in a sense. And the rules of the game can be in some cases also like rigged against them, I would say. For Ethereum, I mean, Ethereum has like, I think there's like less pretense that I don't know that's maybe not may not be the right word. And they don't like pretend as much that like the system is sort of devoid of governance and, and, and it's not going to change, right? So there's definitely the expectation that sort of Ethereum core developers and researchers sort of together present this roadmap and then you know the community is going to adopt it. And the community has in the past, like it used to consist only of followers, and now like we have also have leaders in the community. Right? There have been proposals that didn't make it through, like, for example, changing the proof-of-work algorithm from the one that we currently use. It was developed as like an ASIC-resistant algorithm, which in itself is like a very bad idea. It was broken and sort of now it's like 100% ASICs, basically. But once there, there was sort of a, a counter-proposal to change to, to a different algorithm. Like the community was sort of very skeptical of that and sort of rejected it pretty firmly. And... If I think back, like it's been so long since, since I thought about this, but this actually revealed, well, it's like one of the most interesting case studies at all about Ethereum governance. I, I would definitely sort of recommend. I do want like some researchers or like historians to like look at this era and just see what happens and sort of draw some conclusions from it because this proposal of ProcPow came up, I think four or five times and it was always led by like one or two people and they brought it up. It got rejected. Wait one month, two months, they bring it up again. It sort of moves a little further, gets rejected. And this happened like four or five times. And it showed that if you have a few sort of very motivated parties, then, you know, they can get very far pushing like a very self-interested sort of proposal through. And there's not a lot of guardrails against getting negative change implemented. So for a way that made me pretty bearish on Ethereum governance when this, you know, we had this sort of this back and forth. But I mean, at some point I would say, I mean, it just became clear that, you know, it's not going to happen. And this to me represented then much more of a positive thing where sort of you had something that many core developers wanted and the community didn't want, still didn't get implemented. And I think that sort of marked an interesting change in Ethereum's power dynamic. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this. You know, we had initially not planned to, to ask questions about Bitcoin governance or Ethereum governance and instead focus more on, on DeFi governance. But since you brought it up, it's you sort of alluded to it, but I think you said something to the effect of Ethereum not having token holder-based governance was by design, right? And, and as a result, what happens when you don't have a formalized governance structure, a shadow governance structure forms. That is sort of the path of least resistance where, you know, if there's a group of people around this shadow governance structure. Some of these people are going to have more social credibility than others and they become leaders, right? 
But how do you think about like the token holder, one token, one vote, or something like that governance that's formalized and very clear to the market versus this kind of shadow Illuminati structure? Yeah, I think going a step back, I knew we had to talk about layer one governance because I think people who now build DAOs and like DeFi projects, they try to sort of take lessons from what they see in like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum and, and so on. And in many ways, it's just the completely wrong thing to look at, right? If you zoom out even further, first, I think we should like really look at sort of what governance structures have emerged in the real world for different use cases, right? And really every sort of organization has its own, I don't want to say like perfect governance structure, but the one that has sort of emerged over, you know, centuries, in some cases, millennia as like, the one that, you know, people use has consistently produced results, at least better than the available alternatives. And so why do, like, why do democratic countries generally perform better living conditions and like larger economies and so on than dictatorships, for example, right? But why does, you know, a company that's run as a democracy you know, never go anywhere where sort of the largest companies in the world are effectively dictatorships. And so I think anyone who wants to have any opinion on governance should first like really try to answer these like most fundamental questions and, and explain like, okay, so why did XYZ develop the way it did? And then we can talk about, okay, so which of these do we want to copy for things that we do in crypto? So if I should give any like an attempt at sort of explaining this. I mean, it's really sort of about what the objective function is of a, of a particular organization and, and also what is the cost of failure. I think those are like the two most interesting ones. So if, if you have a country, then you have this relationship that's sort of a principal agent relationship between, you know, the people who live there, which you let's call them the principal and they empower sort of any, I mean, whether it's like a king or it's like an elected government or it can be anything right? in order to sort of govern them and sort of steer the country in, in like a positive way. Then the question is sort of how does, how do the, those decisions, you know, affect them first, like how do we align interest? How do they align like interest, but how does the sort of the decisions that affect them? So if your country, you know, goes down, the gutter, then, you know, that's really, really bad for you because your exit cost, like everything that you own is going to be affected from this. Your entire life is going to be affected from this. Like you can, most people cannot just leave their country. Like they are bound to this place and, and it affects everything. Like it affects their family, their friends, their work, their parents, everything. So if anything goes wrong with this system, then, you know, it's just very bad. So we have to make sure that like the, the incentives are extremely aligned and Basically, we have a lot of checks and balances and sort of division of power in place in order to minimize the risk of failure. And we are willing to give up a lot of upside and a lot of efficiency in like decision making just sort of to minimize the bad outcome. With a company, you know, that's completely different. Like if a company blows up, then you have basically three outcomes. I mean, for one, sort of the product disappears from the market or like the service. The people who work there, they, you know, lose their job. And the third one is sort of the equity holders of the company. They sort of lose their shares, right? They use sort of their investment in, 
in the company. And neither of those are like a particularly bad outcome. So most companies have competitors and, you know, the market share is just going to go to them. You know, for any assets the company owned, owns, it's just going to be like redistributed and the economy and put to better use elsewhere, including the people who work there, like they, they can find new jobs. And for the investors, I mean, that's just capitalism, right? That's just why people have like diversified portfolios and, and so on. So this is sort of for them, like some amount of failure is, is sort of priced in. They are like calculated risk takers. And so you really like really like a company blowing up or even just a product line blowing up is really not so bad. So I think it's not really something that you need to defend against. So very hard. I mean, of course you want to avoid it, but the better, more efficient leadership you can have, I think the further you can go, the less you need to defend against bad outcomes, the more of an like, effective leadership you can afford. I'm definitely curious, like, what do you do think? If you agree or disagree with the analysis, I mean, there are a lot of governance structures we didn't get into. I just gave like two, you know, pretty like extreme opposite examples. Yeah. So definitely curious sort of to, to hear your take on this. You know, I approach this sort of stuff very anecdotally. I'm not like a political philosopher. I'm a practitioner and, and we at Reverie are practitioners. And so I'm sure the political philosophers listening to us are, are going to laugh at what we're saying. But there was like a few years ago, I read this paper. It was super simple. And the, the paper was basically like, hey, like the feature and the bugs of democracies is the feature is they're very resilient. The bug is they move really slowly. The feature and the bug of dictatorships is, well, they move very quickly. And the bug is if you kill the dictator, there's a vacuum, power vacuum, or if the dictator is evil, it sucks to live in the dictatorship, right? So very simple. And that paper really must have read it sometime in 2018. And the, the thing it got me thinking about is like the governance structure needs to fit the product. And so if the product is a country and the product users are the citizens, right? They probably want like a country that's not going to change. The laws are not going to change under them very quickly, right? If you're building a business, you want to know it's going to be on solid footing. And so democracies generally are very, very favorable to business owners, right? Because you know exactly what groundwork you're building on. It's pretty solid. And if the laws change, they change so damn slowly. So you can see it coming and you have time to react, right? So it's a really good, democracies are a really good product for businesses. You know, you take something like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, right? I feel like the more difficult governance is, the more difficult it is to change, the better the product, right? So if you're pitching Bitcoin as a store of value, presumably you don't want the store of value to just change into something else, you know, the next day or the next month. So the more slowly you can make decisions, the better the product is, if the product is store of value, right? Some people say it shouldn't be store of value, but that's, that's a whole separate discussion. Same with Ethereum, right? If you're like, well, hey, this thing is going to be a neutral platform that's censorship resistant. You probably don't want it to change too quickly. So maybe the governance should be a little bit slow or archaic or, or just hidden, right? So it's not a perfect way of thinking about it, but that's how I've been thinking about the topic for, for several years now. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it with your explanation. It was way better than the one that I gave, more condensed. And yeah, I mean, I think it makes perfect sense to think about it this way. I think Bitcoin is like, you can think of it as like, country and then ethereum is maybe more like a charter city or something or like a much smaller more nimble country that's sort of very optimized for you know doing business there and i think that's like a large link i mean you mentioned sort of laws like very good for businesses i think like property rights in fact is probably one of the largest sort of 
I read a paper that explained explained like most of the wealth of like Western civilization by sort of the the strength of its property rights, and that was sort of very sort of mind opening thing for me to read and made me sort of then write this article that's I think it's like from 2018 or something way back. It's about sort of how blockchain sort of encode this idea of like digital property rights. And that was sort of one of the things that made me the most bullish about crypto to like to begin with. And so I think definitely like the more robust sort of or sort of the more resilient your governance is, I think the, the stronger your property rights are. And that's definitely like given that a lot of crypto, the use case for crypto today is just holding as as like an investment. I think the property rights matter a great deal. On the topic of property rights, I am reminded of what happened a few days ago with Yield Guild Games and Merit Circle, where the members of the DAO, it was, I think, literally random people in the community just wanted to terminate the, the relationship with YGG and their investment and not give them the the legally binding amount of tokens that they were entitled to. So yeah, wouldn't say a lot of these newer protocols have established or or even consider property rights as a as a core component, which again may or may not be the right fit for what they're trying to do. Yeah, this is like a fascinating example. So it says so much, I think, about crypto and about the future of it, because it really does make people realize the value of having like a a court system right or sort of any sort of legally binding agreements right like you can have any deal that you want between two consenting parties the contract is only there in case something goes wrong right sort of what both people can take to the courts and and sort of enforce what is owed to them and in this case, like if, if DAOs do business, even just two international entities, really, like, I don't know what it was in this case. It was like a DAO somewhere from like Asia or something. And then like a US investment firm. I mean, good luck trying to sort of enforce, even if you have a contract, like good luck enforcing that as a US investor in Asia somewhere, right? I mean, it's not going to happen, realistically speaking. And so... People have to realize this is just a cost basically on doing business. It's like the cost of trust. I mean, there's probably like an economic term for it. But if people cannot trust each other and know that they can have like legally binding contracts and the other party isn't going to misbehave, then, you know, that just sort of some people may do it anyway. But, you know, a lot of people are just going to not enter business agreements with each other. And then the business doesn't get made and, you know, the value doesn't get created. (laughs) So and so we really haven't like figured out a way for sort of DAOs to do business with each other and do it in the same way. Like a lot of people praise the idea of the DAO as like the supranational business, supranational organization, right? That's like no identity, just everything sort of digital, right? It's, it's a company that lives only in the sky. But I think the promise of a company <laughs> that is digital is way less promising if they cannot, like one company cannot enter like legally binding agreement or let's like put like the term legally in like in brackets, but like a binding agreement with another entity. And so I think there's a large design space here for encode contracts on chain, 
maybe even going as far as like, so two DAOs that are like from the same factory or whatever, you had, have like a quad system where sort of they can go and different blockchains can have sort of different quad systems and so on. I think some blockchains have tried this. And I think once you get into like a DAO to DAO business world and so on, then it, you really need something like this. And so, but yeah, I mean, today it's just, I would say a lot of deals between DAOs don't happen because there's no way to protect against misbehavior. I remember when I first started investing, I was going through the contract that the, the terms of the investment. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, there's like some arbitration clause and it's like, we're agreeing if we sue each other to settle or to educate the dispute using this court system, right? And I was like, oh, that's an interesting point. I guess we don't need to use a state's court system. We could just agree to use, I don't know, something like an Aragon, right? For some sort of future blockchain-based internet cloud, you know, dispute resolution mechanism. No one's really built that yet. It doesn't seem like, I haven't been tracking Aragon quite a bit, but it does seem to me that, you know, in the long-term time horizon, the idea that there's going to be this like internet native jurisdiction that you can incorporate in and have your disputes settled there. It seems like a no-brainer, but we'll see what how, how countries respond to it because that's part of their business. Yeah. I mean, the closest equivalent is, I think, still going to be the one of like the charter city. They're like city state that is extremely business friendly. And I think, yeah, I think that's how we, many ways so we ought to think about blockchains and i think they will start to compete on the same terms with them like offering like strong property rights but also often offering like a court system for any entities that sort of build on top of their blockchain i mean i think the snarky response here would be to say that bitcoin and ethereum and, and other l1s with strong property rights are the ultimate court system and are the only ones like worth building on and, and thinking about, which I don't think is necessarily true. But yeah, I think to just like direct this conversation into into more of a like targeted focus, like like Hasu, can you talk a bit about what we've talked about in terms of property rights and 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 governance systems that are tailored to a project specific needs? Like, how do you think about those things? in terms of some of the DeFi protocols you've you've seen or worked on? What are your thoughts, positive or negative? Yeah, so um, I currently work with Flashbots, Lido and MakerDAO. And I think it's like, don't know if the, those are like all DeFi, I would think they are. And Flashbots is right now, it's just, you know, a centralized company in the Caymans. Lido, Lido in fact, is, is actually mostly a DAO. And then MakerDAO is also a DAO. And so... I think my experience have been sort of very different. And I think it shows that we're still very early in this and everybody is sort of, I mean, some are copying so each other's homework, but mostly all of these different projects are like trying to figure it out in a way like from first principles. And I mean, I think the biggest, if I had to guess, like the biggest problem, and I don't, I think like of those, only like MakerDAO really has this problem and the other two don't, but so I think the biggest problem that exists sort of with DeFi, with governance of like DeFi protocols is that they are not currently, like they optimize for something other than making good decisions and like making a good product. They basically optimize for regulatory arbitrage slash like regulatory psyops. 
they do this by, I mean, sometimes pretending that, you know, they are decentralized, but are actually very centralized, which I, I even agree with. Or the bigger mistake is like by actually decentralizing their decision-making, right? So they do sort of huge yield farming programs and sort of distribute 80% of the tokens to the community or 90% or whatever. I think in case of Zushi, it's like 98% or whatever. And then they wonder that the protocol is, you know, doesn't have anyone to steer them because you have a, like nobody is really incentivized to vote and nobody has any idea what's going on and nobody has like a compelling vision. And basically there's no, there's like no dictator that steers the project. And the problem that both of them have, especially sort of the more centralized forms of governance, is that they don't, they aren't really sort of optimizing for like the business of that. So I think almost all DeFi protocols are like extremely afraid of making any revenue, basically. So basically, we're basically in a pre-revenue world for DeFi in many ways. So they don't like dare to turn on the fees because then you could argue that the token that they issued becomes a claim on the DAO's treasury and that makes it a security. And yeah, I think as a result, like we are looking at this thing that is really a company that has the goal of making a really great product for users but it isn't governed in a way to make a really good product and it, it isn't governed in a way to maximize shareholder value. And the, the two are in many ways like very closely related as well. So yeah, I mean, to me, that's really the summary of you know the two extremes that we currently see in DeFi. And I, I don't think anyone is doing, I can't even give like any positive example of like some, someone who's like doing a good job I think everybody's just doing a very poor job just for different reasons. I'm glad you brought up the, the regulatory psyops. That's definitely, uh, unfortunately, a thing that's happening. And I'm not sure how it'll play out. But it seems to me there's this thing also happens where, you know, founders are like, hey, look at what Bitcoin and Ethereum did. Look at how they're governed. Hey, we should do the same thing for our DAO without thinking about, well, hey, we have, we have a, like a product. And so we're like a product DAO and we need to iterate quickly and using the governance structure of these L1s or something too heavy, that's going to prevent us from actually rapidly iterating on product. And to your point, like in making money, right, on the product, which, you know, money is a good thing, right? You could take more money and, you know, invest in people and marketing. And I, I don't know why people are so afraid of saying money is a good thing in this space. It's a benefit for the users of the product, too, if you can reinvest back in the product. But, you know, this whole ideology of decentralization and this ideology of censorship resistance, I feel like we've taken it a little too far because now it's applied to every single product, not only L1s. And that's a little bit backwards in my mind. Yeah. I was initially turned off from Ethereum because of its like strongly like kind of socialist vibes that I got from the project in like the early years. You know, this, this idea of like being really anti-business and so on. And it took me it took me a while to realize that Ethereum is actually sort of the most sort of hyper-capitalist kind of system that exists, right? In theory, it, it can be, it is like a property layer for the internet where you can encode arbitrary smart contracts on chain agreements. You can build businesses that don't rely on 
on trust from the consumer, it's really like insanely powerful. Like the only thing that's really missing is like <laughs> at this stage, sort of the ability for founders to say, I'm building this to make a lot of money <laughs> because that's what you need in order to, I mean, you need the incentive for people just to build huge businesses and get really, really rich. That's how you get great experiences and great lasting companies that create a lot of value for the world. I think we, we've definitely taken it too far. And I think in many cases, I mean, it's, it's like perfectly explainable by the fact that like DeFi founders just don't want to go to jail. And so, I mean, I, I've talked to so many of them, like, why are you giving away? You have like all of this liquidity. It's not being used for anything. Like you, do you realize that you pay $10 million on this per month and it does nothing for you? And they are like, yeah, we realize, but we have to like really, really quickly get all of these tokens to the market so we can say that we're decentralized. Like this is literally a discussion. This exact conversation I've had like five times. So, I mean, for God's sake, stop issuing tokens. I mean, or start selling them to accredited investors, but sort of you are killing your business before it even gets any chance to live by making, you know, these sort of by running a business, but not running it as a business and like selling 90% of it and getting nothing for it. And yeah, it's, it's really bad, basically. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with, I think this general line of conversation, it's something that like Larry and I joke about getting anything done in a DAO takes a few multiples longer than just having one person do something it takes weeks to make a decision sometimes and and iterate on on the language and the proposal as opposed to literally just doing it which could at the end of the day like take an hour or something and i think the cynic in me thinks that a lot of the bear market will actually be be nice for having these sorts of conversations and talking about how decisions should actually be made because founders can afford to think on a much longer time horizon. They might not be so eager to get a token out to the public and optimize for short-term liquidity and, and keep token price high. Like Those are all things that, again, if they matter to you in the short term, you're going to make some, some decisions in terms of protocol design, in terms of governance, in terms of how decentralized it needs to be, which again, like I agree, most protocols just should not be they just shouldn't have full launching governance and any attempt to make it so is comes directly at the expense of, of the product. Yeah. I think it's also important to ask, like, why does this happen? Like, what are even the incentives sort of underpinning the entire, you know, DeFi and crypto space that lead to these bad outcomes? And I think it's, it's like straight up the token for almost all of these projects is the product that they are building. The founders have like, it's almost like the business is a facade. The token is the product. They are building a token that they justify with a product that has no ambition to ever, you know, fly and become a huge business. They just need to keep it up long enough for them to get any exit liquidity on their token. And that's already sort of life-changing money because it's a new paradigm or whatever, right? And it's like a, it's like a, a completely unregulated retail market that they are selling to. And I think it's, I mean... In many ways, this is the result of it being so easy for founders to get exit liquidity. I think 
that the outcome of like, if you build, if you have a sort of traditional business, then you need a business that can go public or at least like make it to like series B, C, where you sort of sell secondaries to investors and, and sort of generate some, some exit liquidity for investors that way, or you sort of get it acquired or whatever. But in either case, like you need to develop the business into a much like more mature and sort of value generating state before you, as a founder, you can get any exit liquidity on it. And in, in crypto, it's a huge problem that you can get exit liquidity, I think, right from the start. I mean, surely there are many benefits also to getting early liquidity, but I think it's like a really double-edged sword. And I think we need to like create better sort of standards and, and best practices around when is the right time to launch a token and also like what should investors and employees and everyone like participating in these like really be be aware of. Because as mainly as an investor, I think it's mainly sort of the investors who are of course like gonna be like left holding the bag on almost all of these because they think they're buying a business, but in reality they're buying a token. And they are gonna get the token, but they are not gonna get the business. Yeah, going back to the incentives for for even launching a token, it, you know, obviously during the bull market, the large incentive was you can make generational wealth overnight, right? Like you can basically launch a token and instantly have, you know, a hundred to three hundred million dollar fully diluted valuation, which is crazy. And I think everyone at the time knew it was crazy. We'll look back twenty years from now, knowing how crazy that time was. But that was a big incentive. But I think the the one that's less spoken about what was equally powerful is as a product company, you're sort of at the mercy of your stupidest competitor. And so if your competitor launches a token and pulls TVL, and if, if you don't counter position by launching a token, you've sort of lost the game in the short term, which you know could potentially lead you to losing the game in the long term. And I feel like a lot of teams just saw bad teams launching tokens them losing market share and having to retaliate and counter position by also launching a token. And that was a weird incentive and a bad incentive, but nonetheless, an incentive that was pretty prevalent, I think, in the market. Yes, I agree that people think that way. And there's like a st extremely strong urge to think that you are at the mercy of your dumbest competitor. And if like these cycles work, like if sort of crypto weren't cyclical, but it was like just like a straight lineup, then I would agree. But I think in practice, like the cyclicality of the crypto market is actually something that's like, <laughs> if you're a project that is thinking long-term and is willing to like be conservative and like wait things out, you should see this as one of the best things possible for you. Because it's almost like there's a tide coming every two years and it's like culling all of your weakest competitors and it's giving you all of these like great opportunities. And so you just, all you have to do is like be sensible and make good decisions and stay alive. But please think like for more than like this bull market. Right. And I think if, if like more projects did that, then they would realize that, you know, the cyclicality of the, of the crypto market and like the bear and bull that's actually playing hugely in their favor. They just have to, plan ahead for multiple cycles. Like again, going back to like treasury management, if you didn't keep your treasury in crypto, then you are now in an incredible position. Like I can tell you from my positions in Flashbots and, and Lido, like hiring has never been better 
in crypto than it is right now. Why? Because there's all of this amazing talent sort of now coming on the market. Every, everybody's being laid off at like the projects that didn't properly risk manage. Let's look at MakerDAO. MakerDAO is probably in the best position that it's ever been in, in its position from a, in like its life cycle from a business case because all of the centralized lenders are blowing up. Like they all were getting caught up in this bull cycle and, you know, taking excessive risks. And now all of a sudden nobody has like, there's like basically all of the liquidity is drying up. And now people are, got, are coming to Maker, you know, to, to take a loan there instead of getting it sort of from many of the large lenders who have taken like really big hits to their balance sheet. So I think if you are patient, then the bear market is going to reward you for it. Just like see the bear market as your friend and not as your enemy. Totally agree. What you said sort of reminds me of, I forget how the phrase goes exactly, but it's something to the effect of like in any cycle, the fund that has the best returns is probably not going to be around 10 years from now because to get those returns, they took too much risk and future cycles would just blow them out. You know, I think the same sort of aphorism applies to just, you know, running a business, a product company, where if you're the best in a certain cycle, that probably means you took too much risk, which probably means you have the wrong lessons that you're following and future cycles may actually wash you out. And so if you're like the third, fourth, fifth biggest project in that cycle who didn't, you know, take aggressive, crazy risks, then you'll probably ride it out just fine since the, the guy who's in first place is going to not be around two, three years from now. Yeah, just 100% agree. I think it applies to funds and to projects equally. And yeah, you don't have to be the number one on any cycle. You just have to be consistent and, and stay alive and, you know, optimize for the long term and make good decisions. And I think there's a reason like we're talking sort of about the goals and so on so much. What is the objective function? Do you have the right objective function? Because it really, if you can't name the objective function of your protocol, then like we can't even begin to talk about what the right governance structure for you is, right? We need your objectives and then we can like, we know sort of what governance we can put in place to optimize for this, like make it so that you reach this objective more like as often as you can and sort of reach like negative, very negative outcomes, like as little as possible. So let's say, Hasu, like, let's say you're talking to a, a founder. He's has a small team. He's building a product that is starting to work, starting to get some traction organically without token incentives or bootstrapping, starting to think about governance and, and like, should, should they even be thinking about governance? What would you tell them? At what point, like, does it make sense to start having the conversation around using incentives, which would sort of have to launch governance? That is kind of the problem. If you if you want to bootstrap these protocols and through, through liquidity incentives of any kind, launching governance, again, up till now has sort of come with that. So just curious how, how you think it, in an ideal world, these these conversations should go. Right. And I, I do have these conversations with my portfolio companies, right? I am an, an angel investor and I do talk with at least like the ones that want to hear it. Like I do talk about this quite frequently with them. So, I mean, the first question is really, so when do you think about governance? And I think one, one like very, very fundamental truth that we haven't talked, touched on yet in this podcast is governance is a liability to your business. I think like people should start seeing like that you can build immutable protocols 
on top of blockchains. That's just one of the most incredible features that you can have. And it's like basically removing the ability for your protocol to like screw over the customer or screw over the investor. I mean, both, both are sort of principal agent problems that sort of hurt the growth of traditional companies that exist. And, and we have the tools to solve both of them. But when you can't, there's a lot of use cases where you can argue, like you cannot sort of ossify this. I mean, this way, like we need sort of some steering. We need like some way to like tune the parameters here or like change them or add stuff or whatever, right? Um, and in that case, I think what you really ought to think about, like what is the things that can go wrong in governance? And sort of then think about, okay, so what incentives can we create for the people governing this, you know, in order to sort of not abuse their power, but instead make good decisions. And the more, the sort of the larger the governance surface of your protocol is, the more can go wrong, the more you need to incentivize your governors to behave well, right? Really, you can think in many ways, like the governors are just like the miners, Bitcoin or like the stakers and proof of stake. And it, it's just like a service provider, in a sense, like to your product that sort of fulfills a certain role. And if you want to, you want them to implement like a strategy that's sort of very aligned and very beneficial. And if you want to do that, then you have to, to pay for it, basically. So the larger the governance, governance is a liability, is the first thing. The larger your governance, surf, governance surface, the more you have to pay. And if you can get away with sort of removing the governance surface, then you should always, always prefer that. And so I would say really like go out of your way to build immutable protocols that don't need governance or sort of minimize governance in order to save it'll save you so much headache and it'll save you so much money as well to give one example like look at lido lido's problem right now is it's too successful it's too good basically like to the point where some community members and ethereum core developers saying oh lido is getting too big lido takes stake from stakers and delegates it to around 30 different node operators. And then these node operators like stake, stake on behalf and like Lido does a lot sort of to align the interest between the node operators and the Lido protocol. But what the others are arguing, so Lido is, itself can become incentivized to exert pressure on the node operators in order to mine a stake in a certain way, right? For example, like Sensei Ethereum users. And so you can already see like, in practice, like Lido has by a mile the best product on the market, but but people are saying, oh, like it's it's getting too big. And this you could say this might be like a special use case. And in many areas, like you can have monopolies that don't threaten sort of the underlying blockchain itself. But I think it's just a good example because it's you know it's it's so topical right now. And if Lido were immutable and they could say, Oh, there is nothing that Lido can do to influence the node operators, then there's a much, much stronger case that it can safely scale to whatever size, right? And so I think you can very clearly see that like, it's not, I mean, it's not good for Lido that it needs governance in this area. And like the Lido team is like far and away, like thinking more than anyone, like deeper than anyone about how it can ossify a way like every part of the protocol and sort of re further and further re reduce the scope of governance because they deeply understand that they need to become immutable in order to capture all stake on Ethereum. And that this is also the thing that maximizes revenue for LDO holders, 
right? And leads to the best product for, for stakers because they are sort of in the, the most liquid staking derivative, right? And so I would say that's when to think about governance. I mean, <laughs> think about it before you do anything else and try to like use it as little as possible and have like a really clear plan to get out of it. And if you need governance, think really hard about aligning incentives between like the basically those, yeah. So between investors and the protocol and between users and the protocol. And as to your second question, when to use incentives. So I think it's like a huge misconception in crypto that you need a token in order to issue incentives, right? I think we were talking about this actually in our last episode that people think they need, projects think they need to issue a token in order to incentivize their users when all the user does is get the token and sell it on the market. I mean, for USDC, you can also sell tokens to like accredited investors or you can sell equity to accredited investors in order to, you know, just raise money and pay that to your users. Like at the very least, like you don't need any kind of like public token. Like you don't need sort of the kind of liquidity that we have right now. And I think in many ways it's like, it's even like, it's not good at all, basically that you're, you're using a token in order to incentivize your, your customers to use your product. It's, it just creates additional friction for them. I mean, all they do is they sell the token. I mean, you're just making them just jump through one more hoop. I mean, this whole meme of like you're being airdrop responsibility. Oh my God. I mean, please, like this is some of the dumbest things that I've ever heard. I mean, so yeah, I think, think really hard about like try to sort of logically disentangle incentives from like launching a public token, because I think the public token is at the root cause of many, many, many of these problems, right? Early founder liquidity, mismatched incentives, like the product becomes a token. You cannot make revenue because you, you're federal regulators. Like you have this, <laughs> this root of all evil and you're not like realizing it because you think, oh, like I need to, how should I survive if I don't pay these absurd liquidity incentives? So I think really like go back to the drawing board and like think, like how should it be done? And then like, how can I do it in like a safe and sustainable way? Factoring in several market cycles. You know, there's so many ways to take this conversation because you mentioned so many interesting things. I guess like since we, we started the podcast a little bit, you know, theoretical, maybe getting more tactical in particular with the Lido situation, I feel like could be interesting at least for a little bit. I mean, I've been tracking the Lido stuff, not too closely, but but closely enough where I sort of, I, I feel like I have a, a good sense of what's happening. And, you know, my biggest takeaway from that, and I'm curious to get your reaction, Hasu, is if I'm building on top of Ethereum and my protocol is too successful, where, you know, I become a oligopoly or potentially a monopoly, which, you know, what a lot of business owners and founders want to become, then there is a non-zero chance that the Ethereum community through social coercion will prevent me from actually reaching that status, which is a little bit scary to founders who are ambitious and want to build legacy defining businesses. How do you think about stuff like that? Like what are the second order effects of what's happening? Yeah, that's a really great point. So I think like the fact that you can build monopolies is something that drives just a huge amount of, you know, progress and innovation in the world, right? So I think it's just it's just really, really important that it's possible on top of you know these public blockchains and the, that the property rights of these businesses and these founders and their investors 
are deeply respected. What is happening right now, I can understand sort of why the Ethereum Foundation is taking the interventionist approach that it does, but I think the second order effects are not good for Ethereum, right? Especially, I mean, like economies are networks, right? And sort of what the internet does is it sort of creates this global network. And what blockchains do is it imbues like a market economy into the biggest network of the world that sort of goes beyond all borders and just allows anyone to do business with anyone. I mean, we, we touched on this in like the first 30 minutes of this conversation. But I mean, if you think how are businesses going to look like as we enter service from like a service economy into like a network economy, it's only like becoming like the outcomes become more and more and more concentrated. And I think that's, that's just inevitable. And sort of, I think if, if you don't support what is the, the natural outcome of these markets, which is that they are extremely winner take all in many cases or winner take most, then I think you're just a bad, you become like a very sort of hostile place to do business. However, so the reason that I, I say, like, I understand why the Ethereum Foundation and other community participants feel the need to speak up against Lido, warn about the risks, etc., is that Lido is not just like a protocol, right? It does have sort of, it's very, sort of, you could say, close to the metal in terms of Ethereum security. And I mean, that's why I am interested in it, because... This is the stuff that is just really, really, really interesting to me. And I, I'm in it to make these blockchains, you know, survive and prosper and become sustainable. And so they, like, they, they see this project that is sort of really close to the metal in terms of Ethereum security, and they see it as a potential risk, basically. And Lido is sort of doesn't say that the risk doesn't exist. They just say, if you do this, the second order effects are going to be very bad. And we are already... Like for one sort of, this is one part. The second part is like, you guys are sort of responsible that the risk exists. Like do the merge, turn on withdrawals. Like this is going to completely like change sort of the power structure in this market and sort of give customers way more power. And then third, so we admit that like we are sort of the most upfront of anyone about all the things that can go wrong in our protocol. And sort of the risk that emanates from ADO holders because they can perform sort of various actions, like, for example, minting more staked ETH, right? And so, like, it's, like, not at all in the interest to do so. But we need, like, not in the interest is not enough. So I'm the first, basically, to say this is, like, not enough. And so that's why you see this proposal from, from Lido and, like, other proposals, like, in order to sort of remove any ability to govern parameters of the system that can be bad for stakers. So... And I think the dual governance proposal, so for anyone who hasn't followed the debate, what it does is it takes all of the decisions that can potentially be bad for stakers and gives stake ETH holders a veto right in any of these decisions. So stake ETH holders cannot propose stuff in governance, but they can block any decision that would potentially be bad for them. And so we think that that this is like, like a very novel thing in governance and something that Basically, I think it addresses like almost all of the concerns that people have about Lido governance. And in theory, it should allow Lido to scale to a much larger size than it otherwise could. I find this discussion 
theoretically and, and practically fascinating. And it, I can't help but think, you no, know, actually, I'll give an example. I remember some time in 2019 when I was at DCG, we had a portfolio company, a large exchange in Japan. And prior to that, I had, I had never invested in any Japanese companies. So I didn't really know about how, how stuff works there and still know very little except for this one incident where, you know, essentially a large buyer came to the company and they're like, hey, we'll buy you for a bunch of money. And, you know, all the shareholders were very happy. The team was very happy. And so the deal was taken to the board and, you know, the intention was to say yes to the deal so that everyone could be happy and, and walk away and continue doing other things. And what I didn't realize, in, and I don't know the exact mechanics of how this happens, but there was basically like a, a Japanese regulator or someone that represents the Japanese government sitting on the board. And they essentially had veto rights on any sort of M&A deals. And the idea was basically, and this was explained to me several years back, and so I never really looked into the details, but the idea was like, hey, the Japanese government, it wants companies not to run just for the profit of shareholders, but for the benefit of Japan, the country, right? And so instead of companies optimizing for just one bottom line, which is the shareholder, they got optimized for two bottom lines, which is the shareholder, oh, and the government. And as you would expect, companies in Japanese markets are traded for way less, you know, their market caps are way smaller than equivalent companies in the United States, because in the United States, the courts and the general social standards are such that it's okay to run a company for the profit of shareholders and run monopolies or oligopolies. And of course, shareholders love that. And, you know, I can't help but think there's a non-zero chance. A lot of networks, because they have multiple constituencies and multiple stakeholders, they're not going to be run exclusively for the profit of token holders, which would actually make returns for token holders much smaller than they otherwise could be. And that's not a bad thing. These are all trade-offs, but it's fascinating to apply the country lens to this sort of thing. I'm not sure if this was your intention, but you're touching on one huge problem that exists in crypto, and that is sort of projects that try to, that don't try, but that have multiple bottom lines to maximize. For one, the equity of their maintainer companies, and then sort of the bottom line of their token holders. And I have to be very careful here on this topic, but I think there are some very major projects in the crypto space that have this dilemma. And as a token holder, I would just be, I just categorically stay far away from these projects because I basically think the incentives are massively stacked against you. And you see this in the Japanese market. You should see it even more in the crypto market. Like once there's sort of equity plus token, then the token holders are going to get thrown under the bus. And I mean, there's like one particularly absurd example where a project uses its token to generate revenue that goes into the company to equity holders. So I'm not going to name any names, but yeah, I think there are like egregious examples like that. And to me, I find this morally distasteful. And as an investor, I'm staying very, very far away from projects that partake in this. I think the challenge is that with some protocols, it's, it's very easy to build something simple that just works and you don't have all these risk parameters and and like second order effects that have to be like manually governed and with other protocols like lending protocols with eth derivatives like it's just much more much more complex it's much more hands-on and i guess the argument there would be 
some of these these functions can become more automated. Some of them can become more algorithmic. Like you could imagine a future where MakerDAO no longer needs to update the stability fee so frequently or, or monitor some of those ratios. And there's other projects that have tried to, to do that without a ton of success. But like, do you see that as sort of one viable path for solving governance and just like making it better is that a lot of these decisions, again, are just automated, right? Like block emissions for, for Ethereum and Bitcoin, they're, they just run. Sure, they might change and that might be a governance vote, but it's not like they change it every week. Yeah, I mean, basically, I completely agree. So, I mean, MakerDAO should have automated its monetary policy decisions like forever ago. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, the algorithm that you put in place cannot be updated. But you basically, you move sort of the governance decisions from micromanaging a particular parameter to managing an algorithm which you can do on like a much less frequent scale. And yeah, you don't have to do it very often. You basically, if like the overall market regime changes, for example, then you can change your algorithm. Or if you have like update sort of the risk of a particular collateral type or like the composition of your balance sheet or whatever. But this is all stuff that even can go into the algorithm itself. So I would say if you can automate, then yeah, you should definitely do so. And I mean, even like going beyond that, I think it really is sort of the most interesting. We already covered now that, I mean, you basically want to minimize governance as much as possible for like many, many, many reasons. But there are use cases or there are protocols that are very complex and you're not going to be able to abstract away all of the complexity. So how do you optimally govern like a complex protocol? I mean, first of all, it's all of the stuff that we already talked about, like try to reduce any sort of competing interests. So first of all, just token, no equity, have revenue, like have like an actual sort of be very clear about what the comp, like what is the objective function of the company and to cite like MakerDAO, like a sort of a clownish example is like the clean money vision where like there's the idea of like adding a social mandate like a social objective function on top of the business objective function, like there aren't enough central banks in the world that have like social mandates and are not focused on making good money. So that's something that I think as like a project, be like very, very careful about like sort of blocking any attempt to add different uh, additional objective functions that compete with the main objective function on the consumer side of creating an amazing product and on the investor side of like, maximizing returns responsibly so i think that's that's sort of really important but then once you have sort of all of the obvious ones oh and i mean the one about like liquidity and not making the the token the product i think those are like the three ones that if you have a complex protocol i think that's like really really key like just get these like out of the way and then we can talk about like how you should actually run your your protocol and i think the governance system is basically like think of it as like a service provider role like you can give control you have this system that you want to govern so you have like two two parameters in it in a sense or like you have three parameters like what is there to govern who gets to govern it and how do you incentive align with them right and the way that it it works right now in many protocols is basically who gets to govern anyone what do they get for it like what can be governed everything what do they get for it nothing so if you if you imagine this as like a three-dimensional matrix, it's like the worst possible combination at all. Like you can change any part of this graph and it immediately become better, right? So what can be governed like 
less, like a smaller scope. And already like you're improving. Who can govern it? How about instead of anyone, how about like putting in place like a specialist for this particular decision? And instead of like not paying them anything, how about like you actually pay them a salary or, <laughs> right? I mean, so that's kind of the three dimensions that I'm thinking that I'm thinking in is like the, the what, the who, and, you know, the incentive alignment. Yeah, I want to double click on, I think, this matrix idea that you're talking about, which I think makes a ton of sense. I think, like, you've been a delegate in, I've seen your application in MakerDAO. Um, I'm not sure if you're, if you're actively voting in other protocols, but you're obviously participating. So, like, what is your view of just, like, the delegate's role? Because, as you said, there are always going to be a class of decisions that have to be made, whether it's electing the specialist to focus on certain parameters or, or roles, whether it's figuring out a, a token decision or, or, or whatever, like there's always going to be some decisions. What do you see as the delegates role? Who should they be? And like, do you see like a professional class of delegates emerging? Do you see it being very protocol specific or it's, it should just be like, community members or even the core team because they're the most knowledgeable? Like, how do you think about these things? And, and what's your experience been like being a delegate? So I've been a delegate in MakerDAO for, I think, three to four months now. And I really did this. I mean, for one, because I care deeply about the project, I think it's it has huge potential as like a decentralized bank. And like I was like reading a lot about it anyway. I was like very intellectually interested in it. But I was also in it to learn more about how you know, governance of these systems works from the inside. And I was like pretty hopeful that I could kick off some positive change. So the way that it works in Meka is basically, I mean, so on this like three-dimensional, in this three-dimensional space, Maker occupies pretty much the worst possible position that you can have. It's like ultra complex. Everything can be governed. Nothing is automated. Every decision is kicked to MKR holders. So who can vote anyone? And then what do they get for it? Nothing. In fact, like the return on voting is negative, deeply negative, in fact, because like it requires like a lot of context in order to, you know, make informed decisions. It's, it's like, it's basically impossible. And then even like the act of voting itself is like, the UX is like not great. It's like you pay gas. Everything is like quite expensive. And so what they did is they think, oh, so let's create this like, this intermediary, which is the delegate, the delegate gets MKR delegated in a non-custodial way from MKR holders. And so they can concentrate the voting power of a lot of, of, a lot of MKR holders. There's still no incentive to delegate your tokens. It's basically just, it's basically just altruistic right now in a sense. Or, and that, except for like the very biggest holders who have like some financial incentive to participate in governance because their stake is so large, right? And so what the delegates do, basically, they vote on behalf of their constituents, of like their delegators, and they get paid like a pretty like mediocre kind of salary. And it's not like designed in a particularly good way. So for example, I've been a delegate for four months. I'm voting on like, I don't know, like 60% of decisions. And yeah, I don't like, I don't write an explanation for everything that I, I vote on in the forum. And so I haven't gotten anything right so because sort of they 
And that's sort of the example of like a very poorly designed sort of incentive program because it incentivizes activity, but not like quality of decision-making, right? So you actively discourage from like spending a lot of time on individual decisions. Instead, you just like incentivize to vote on everything and like basically write like, yeah, write about it on the forum, like blog about it in a sense. I would say that's sort of like a, a pet peeve of mine for sure, where like, you do make an incentive system, which is good. Like finally start paying people to participate in governance, but you are like <laughs> not thinking about your objective function, which is making good decisions. And so you get this sort of weird hybrid that maximizes for something else and doesn't attract the kind of people you want. You know, it's been our experience where we see these problems, a lot of the problems you mentioned, we go to the teams, to the DAOs, to the forums, in good faith saying, hey, like, here are the problems, let's solve them. And one thing we've run into is, you know, there are these entrenched interests who have power and who benefit from the system being the way it is. And so inefficient as it is, it's efficient for the people who are in power. And that's been really, it's been a really difficult thing to change, you know, these habits, because it really just requires lobbying and a lot of social convincing people that your way is right at the expense of of the people who are currently in power and who has the time to do that, right? Like that's a, like a full-time job. And by the way, if you're not getting paid for it, why the hell would you do it sort of thing? And so that's like a challenge we've at Reverie seen for many, many DAOs. Yeah, I mean, it's like spot on. I think the, the role of the delegate has to evolve a lot. I mean, in its current form, it's just completely unsustainable for like several reasons. And I think the, the biggest one is, is one that I, like, I, I experienced in MakerDAO where I, I try to do this as like a side project because the opportunity cost of doing it is huge. But I realized that even doing it this full time would still not be enough to make good decisions on everything because like you cannot expect someone to micromanage every decision in a, in a protocol that's as, as complicated as MakerDAO. It's just not possible. And then like... <laughs> As a delegate, in fact, like I'm actively sort of discouraged from spending time on decisions also because there's all of these other delegates that sort of don't do any research and just vote whatever, right? I mean, in some cases, sure, they have like their, their motivations and views, but these views are like not pulling in the same direction. You know, there's some delegates that are like, that are like basically anti-business who would, would think like makers should be run as a public good and like making money is evil. And then there are some who are like really love real world assets. They think we should like lend money to some like African, I don't know, like oil firm at like 0.5% interest unsecured. And like, I mean, you have this completely opposing visions. Like it's like a firm that is being pulled in, in like five different directions that are mutually exclusive in many ways. And so, I mean, it's, it's just the worst possible way to run an organization. And so I think what needs to happen is you know, for that just to be more, I mean, we need to get these protocols much closer to like the real world sort of companies that have a dictator and so on, but do it in a way where the incentives between the investor and sort of the, the managing team and the, the users and the managing team are aligned. So I think that's sort of the design challenge. I think it really starts with like, I wrote about this in, in MakerDAO as well, but I, I really think it starts with 
admitting that like you need specialists to you know make these decisions you need them to work together to develop one coherent vision for the protocol and then you just need to get out of the way basically and the token holders and the delegates just need to be there as like for incentive alignment and like to provide check the checks and balances on the major decisions that that the DAO makes that to me is like the optimal way where you still retain all of the benefits of having a decentralized protocol that you know cannot embezzle any money or do something that's bad for the users or optimize any objective functions that are not in the best interest of the investors or the users and so on but you just rerun it in like a much more efficient way so yeah i think what i'm basically saying is like delegates should be like a more akin to like a board of directors then right now it's i don't even know what like what the sort of reward equivalent would be like you actually have every sort of micromanaging decision coming up in maker governance and you have these delegates who are sort of expected to have an informed opinion on all of them and then vote on them you know in the best interest of the users and the mkr holders and it's just it's just impossible right so like the sooner I can stop being a delegate and make a DAO, the better. I think that's like everything that I'm optimizing for, basically. I just want to like create enough positive change that I can like sit back and like do nothing, frankly, because um, I think it'll lead to like way better outcomes for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think just the sheer number, Larry and I have obviously been been participating in governance through Reverie and are also voting and, and, and acting as delegates and the sheer amount of context and information required to make an informed decision across one protocol, much less several, I think is is very challenging. And as you said, it is, like I said, it's not a part-time kind of thing, even for simple decisions. If you really want to have an informed opinion, talk to the right stakeholders, understand the, the trade-offs. So I think the analogy is the right one. And, and I, and the specialist approach, it is the scalable way. Delegates should not be expected to, to set vision, make day-to-day decisions. Like You need the right people in place to have a scalable method of creating a decentralized protocol. So my question now is, like, where do you find those people? Is it as simple as, hey, let's just, governance should just fund different operating teams? Ave is funded BGD Labs. Should it be different working groups, MakerDAO style? Like, should it be a set of different individuals, each with their own skill set? Like, I think there's a few different approaches that we're seeing empirically. Lido, MakerDAO, Ave. There's a few different approaches, and yeah, I mean, we're we're also seeing specialists like like Gauntlet focused on on this as well, but for a very very specific vertical of risk. So, curious how you think about just like the specialist categories. I would count reverie here as well to be honest well i think it's actually no different from like how a traditional company would find its talent right you identify a need and then you put out you know job offers and you know incentives salary etc and you start to interview them right and you can task yeah i mean ultimately i think this is like the the job of like the founder the founders like the leadership team if there's any and so yeah that's what they should be focused on in my opinion like building building like sustainable organization. And then like, of course you also should look like within your organization, right? So if you know kind of the governance structure that you want, I, I think there's a lot of hidden talent in 
all of these organizations. Like there's so much hidden talent in MakerDAO and in Lido. And I, I know just from like working with them, just being like extremely impressed. And so it's, it's also about empowering the right people and putting them in these positions where they have more decision-making power. And then for example, MakerDAO does have, you know, these core units and core unit has like a mandated actor. That's like their term for like manager basically. And so it's not like there isn't like smaller, like atomic units that are like hierarchically organized that, that have good management and are run like, like, like these small firms, et cetera. But I think like the leadership talent is oftentimes there already. Like it's, it's, it's more sort of, you need to get past this, yeah, this idea that sort of all decisions that like leading is bad and that like decisions have to be kicked to the maker holders. And that's like the only way to protect them. And I mean, to a large degree, we always will be like, we are always coming back to this problem that people are just afraid to make decisions because of regulators, right? So once you're seen as, once sort of you're seen as like a leader in a protocol and like who sort of manages the, the day-to-day, then, I mean, you you truly get some letters basically delivered to you. And so, I mean, but to me, this is like, it's not a huge problem, just, you know, you just have to price it in, right? It's like, like you just have to pay people enough so they can afford good lawyers. That's what I'm saying. This whole discussion, it reminds me of, I think it was Warren Buffett who said it. It's like, invest in a business any idiot can run because one day an idiot's going to run it, right? And, and you look at a lot of these DAOs and you're like, wow, you guys have product market fit in spite of all of these crazy delegation and governance challenges. And so that's really a testament to the product, right? To the core value proposition. And, you know, the governance stuff, yeah, it's a huge problem. It's really annoying. But over time, we'll figure it out. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I agree that some products have product market fit, but I think, you know, this game has many rounds and good products and good companies, like good products die all the time. And building a good company is something that's like way bigger than building a good product that lasts for like, I mean, DeFi summer was like May, 2020. So many of these companies, they barely exist for like one or two years. And they really haven't seen much of like any sort of adversity against them. And so, I mean, that's why I'm saying that many haven't even seen a bear market at all. I mean, you can just tell from the way that they run their treasury that they choose to pay like dividend, like that they choose to pay forward all of their revenue to their token holders all throughout the bull market and are now stuck with like having no treasury at all and need to lay off lay people off and so on i mean it, it just shows you that it doesn't matter that you know these projects have a good product or whatever like the, the team behind it the company behind it, it's not going to make it and so i think you need yeah you need a good governance structure and you need to like people who know what they're doing and i think that really there is no way around like having leadership basically I remember when when you published the treasury management piece with Monet Supply, I had thought that that would, it was such, you know, such a great piece and and extremely intuitive and and common sense stuff, right? I thought everyone's going to say, yep, we're going to, you know, diversify treasury for stables now. Like it was canonical of a piece and no one really did it. How frustrating is it to have like all these what sound like pretty basic ideas and no one listening to you or very few listening to you? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's like a lesson for me that I, I, I can be a lot more convincing or that I need to be a lot more convincing. But I mean, in many ways, like I, 
I knew this already, right? It's it's sort of it's not enough to write down your idea. Like if you want to cause change, then you need to have an idea and you need to be willing to like do just like only sort of propagate and push that idea and lobby for it for like at least one or two years. And that's sort of what it takes in order to not just put out an idea, but also get it adopted. And so, I mean, the protocols that I'm working with, I'm, I'm like sending them the article, like encouraging them to, you know, diversify their treasury and so on. But yeah, it's, it's true that like not many did it. And especially like even fewer of like, like all of the other businesses in the space. And I mean, it's understandable. Like everybody's sort of getting caught up in this hype. And so I think like the allure of like not divesting is, is very large. So I don't blame them. Maybe they can do better next time. I feel like we've covered so many topics. It's, it's been great. Are there any other topics you guys really think we should, we should chat about? And I know we're at time hosses. So if you got to run, let us know. No, I think we pretty much covered everything. <laughs> yeah, no, this has been a really good conversation. It's, it's certainly given me a lot to think about. Again, I think a lot of these ideas are pretty, again, obvious in hindsight and will be when, when this change inevitably happens, like have leadership, incentivize your participants, think about who like holds your tokens and, and how to distribute them thoughtfully. Consider limiting the scope of what everyone can vote on and consider automating. Like these aren't rocket science ideas. It's just, it's just like industry-wide inertia I think has caused people to to just like not think from first principles and and take the most convenient path. And it doesn't just apply to, to governance, it applies to everything, every part of a protocol design or, or product design. So I think it'll take time to see change, but I definitely am optimistic that again, the winners will naturally emerge over a long enough time frame. Yeah, and I mean we shouldn't forget it's like an extremely young industry, right? All, all of these founders are like 18 to like 30. And for almost all of them, this is their first business that they're creating. Yeah, also the VCs in crypto, like <laughs> virtually all of the VCs are also first-time VCs. So it's not even like they can be the parents in the room and say like, oh, this is how you should do things. And so I think a lot of these lessons will be learned. Like I'm not worried, but... It's just like an extremely inexperienced space. I mean, I'm not saying that I have the answers, but I mean, at least like, I think people can like look at how things are already done and like not be so, yeah, I guess like feel so superior to like how things are done in like the traditional startup world, traditional finance and so on, but rather see like, okay, so what are the ideas that have survived for tens, hundreds, in many cases, thousands of years? how like humans organize, how you get good results. And, and I try to like borrow a little more and like try to reinvent the wheel a little less. And then I think we are like increasingly gonna, I think we're gonna iterate slowly but surely towards like a really good outcome for the crypto space. Excited to see your continued involvement in these protocols and in, in governance. And yeah, I think it'll be a, a good process and an and experiment, frankly, to help influence and and change these protocols so they operate more effectively so yeah Hasi, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on today and yeah excited to to do a retrospective i think again similar to the treasury piece in a in, in six to 12 months and 
see if some of these ideas are, are percolating through the market and and how we're all doing. So yeah, thanks again for for coming on. Hopefully, hopefully by then from like a board of director position, we won't, exactly. calling, we won't be calling you delegate anymore. You can't. Yeah, exactly. I feel like we need a different name from board of directors. It's too. You need to call it something else to red pill. The, yeah, we need a good meeting. audience. I, I agree. Awesome. Well, thanks again. See you guys.